That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Build Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill. Bill is in Rome right now as a resident scholar at the American Academy in Rome. Here in Washington, D.C., it's about 8.30 in the morning on Thursday, April the 14th. Primary season is gearing up. Pennsylvania, Georgia, Ohio bring us a whole cast of characters. Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, Katie Vance, Who's up and who's down? And 2024 will be here before we know it. But will the calendar be something we've never known before? Biden calls the Russian war in Ukraine genocide for the first time. How is he balancing an international crisis with a domestic economic one? And Marjorie Taylor Greene says she wouldn't let her son join the military. The White House engages in a fight on immigration with Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Joining me today are Maya King, politics reporter at the New York Times covering the South. Good morning. Good morning. S.V. Date, White House correspondent at HuffPost. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Ginger. And Alex Seitzwald, senior digital politics reporter for NBC News. Morning, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into the news. The primary season is fast approaching us. We've had one early primary in Texas, but now we're going to get into the real thick of it. So let's look at some of the landscape. Maya, you're in Georgia on the ground. What are you seeing unfold um, in the state there? Oh, gosh, a number of different developments um, taking place in Georgia right now. I think the race that everyone is following closest um, is what's happening atop the ticket with the governor's um, primary and the the Senate primaries. So, but we know the Democratic ticket is essentially decided on um, for for the governors and the Senate. We know that Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock will be atop that ticket. Uh, what people are really looking for now um, is the the answer to the question of whether or not Brian Kemp, the current Republican governor of Georgia, will survive a primary challenge from David Perdue. A number of polls and also fundraising figures kind of point to that being the case. Um, And then, of course, you have uh, the Senate primary, which has gotten pretty interesting with Herschel Walker's dominance over the field, much to the chagrin of a number of longtime um, Georgia Republicans who had really planned uh, to dominate this race, particularly Gary Black, um, who is the the former agricultural secretary of Georgia, who has tried really hard um, to sort of take down Walker on the on the airwaves. But it just has been to absolutely no avail. Walker has, I believe, the last poll, something like a 30 or 40 point lead over the rest of the field. Um, and so, of course, we look at these these two marquee races to see what happens down the ballot. But I think uh, what folks are really interested in seeing down here and what I've been talking to people nonstop about uh, are those are those handful of, of primaries taking place uh, at the end of next month in May. Do you get the sense, Maya, that Democrats are watching that these these Republican primaries with a little bit 
of muted glee. Um, I feel like Democrats in past cycles have, have pulled for the candidate that they thought were the the easiest to beat. That didn't work for them. The you know Donald Trump maybe being Exhibit A. Um, but is is Herschel Walker the Democrats' best bet? Are they hoping um, that? Purdue or Kemp pulls it out? Do they see one of them as, as being their, their more easily vanquished foe? Well, I think um, the, the sense among folks who are, who are really plugged into to the Abrams campus, there's this almost hunger for a, a Kemp and Abrams rematch. They know what that's going to do for voter enthusiasm. They know what that's going to do for fundraising. Um, and so they're kind of sitting back and watching what takes place. But I think that that's something that they would they would be interested um, in reigniting, quite frankly. Uh, and, you know, on the Warnock and the Warnock camp, you know, I will say folks have been pretty muted about how they feel about that primary. But I mean, when you kind of look at it, this is a similar pattern that took place in 2021, where you had a lot of Republican infighting stoked largely uh, by the by by former President Trump kind of calling into question the leadership of some of these folks who were on the ballot that dampened Republican enthusiasm, but it also gave Democrats just more time to shore up their own ballot. Um, And that's exactly what they're doing right now. Let's hop over to Pennsylvania, Alex. We've got primaries on both sides of the ballot and Pennsylvania. And um, let's look first at the Democratic side. Connor Lamb, I feel like Biden and others had a lot of enthusiasm about him, but it doesn't look like he's gaining traction. And then this weekend, Fetterman got into a, a back and forth and couldn't really answer questions about a jogger that he pulled a gun on. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is a thing that's come up a few times with uh, John Fetterman's career. And Fetterman, uh, I, I, for those who don't know him, you've probably seen him. He's the six foot something bald tattooed guy who kind of looks like a biker, but has a Harvard degree. Uh, and this is a, a competitive Democratic primary in a very competitive state, uh, one of Democrats' best opportunities to pick up a Senate seat. Uh, Pat Toomey is retiring. Uh, Wisconsin will probably be the other one. So uh, a, a few years ago, when Fetterman was the mayor of his hometown in Braddock, he heard a report, or it's a little bit vague, but he heard something about uh, a, a suspicious person. And he hopped in his car and chased this guy. It turned out the guy was just a unarmed black man jogging, uh, doing nothing wrong. And this became a bit of a controversy in Braddock, uh, you know, with accusations of racism or um, jumping to conclusions at the at the least. Uh, he has always defended himself saying he didn't know the race of the jogger, saying that um, Braddock, his hometown, you know, was really crime ridden and his whole mission as mayor was to clean up the streets. And he famously got tattoos on his arms uh, every time somebody was killed. So um, it, it's come up before, but it's, you know, when he first got in the race, I was getting uh, shipped oppo, opposition research from other candidates about this. It's obviously something that he's going to have to confront. I'm not sure he has um, really put this to bed since it's come up, I think it, this is the at least the, the second or third time in just this primary run so far. But um, I, what I think it speaks to is that no one has been able to clear this field and that's unusual. Uh, Senate Democrats have, for the past like 10 years since I've been covering politics, tended to get behind one candidate early and uh, kind of get the primary out of the way without even really having to take a vote. And uh, then the, the, that candidate heads into the general election 
you know, with all their money untapped. But here we are uh, coming up on the Pennsylvania primary, May 17th, you know, just, just less than a month away. And you still have uh, three or four, three strong candidates, really, um, with Fetterman, I, I think the front runner, but by no means the prohibitive front runner, um, and still a toss up, which will potentially hinder Democrats' ability to unite in the general election. Let's look at the Republican side in Pennsylvania. Uh, SB, there's, we saw Trump weigh in uh, this past weekend. He endorsed um, Mesut Oz, the, the Dr. Oz of TV fame. Does this move the needle in that race, which also is, is very tight on the Republican side? It is. It is very close. And, you know, it, this is fascinating because it goes to what's really become Trump Endorsement Incorporated. Right. I mean, it, it's not just Trump who is who is personally benefiting from all these people going to Mar-a-Lago and holding fundraisers there. And of course, a fundraiser for the candidate is also a fundraiser for Trump's own bank account, because you know, these people end up spending between twenty five thousand and, and, and as much as a quarter million for an event there. And, and, and some of that, well, all of that profit, whatever that happens to be, goes directly to Trump. So there's that. There's also all his former aides who used to work in the White House or used to work at the campaign have all become consultants for these various candidates. And the reason they're hired often as consultants is in order to get Trump's endorsement in a primary, which, by the way, let us remember that Donald Trump tried to overthrow democracy on January 6th, and yet most Republicans still want his endorsement. So let's just remember that. Uh, is it going to be enough to beat David McCormick? I don't know. I mean, McCormick has been really trying to at least get Trump to stay out of it, if not endorse him directly. But, you know, I've heard from people who work for McCormick that McCormick was absolutely unwilling to say, yeah, the election was stolen and um, and you really won and there was a ton of fraud. And, and that may have been the deal killer because that's of course, you know, top of mind for Trump is to get people who agree with his lies about that and, and who will in the future possibly help him if it comes to that situation, if, if we get to that situation again. So, you know, we'll see. McCormick's got a ton of money. Uh, Dr. Oz was on TV, and that ended up being the, the key for Trump. Alex mentioned that Pennsylvania is one of probably the two best chances for Democrats to pick up a seat in, in the November elections. Maya, when you look at a state like Pennsylvania and you're you're out talking to voters, how much are you getting a sense that the the mood of the country is just not there for Democrats? Or are there opportunities for them? I mean, when you look at a place like Pennsylvania where Trump's endorsement and it's hard fought and in a you know a, a possible Democratic candidate that comes out, maybe not too scathed, can they can they build some some traction, you think? Or are voters just not feeling Democrats this year? Well, I think we kind of have a classic midterm situation on our hands where Democrat or where voters are just kind of sick of the of the party in power. But that is exacerbated by the number of crises that are taking place right now. COVID um, is is very much still a factor, I think, in a lot of voters' minds. People are really nervous and scared about what's taking place in Ukraine. And then, of course, prices are only continuing to rise. Inflation, I believe the figures out on Tuesday showed an 8.5% increase in prices. I mean, these are all things that kind of go together. 
But in voters' minds, this is all, it boils down to the folks who are leading the country. Um, I can say that here in Georgia, a lot of the voters that I've talked to have been very, very frustrated with Democrats and Democratic leadership. I've spent a lot of time in the more swinging areas of Georgia, essentially the central part of the state um, and even some some parts of like southwest Georgia, where Republicans have really, really tried to make inroads, not just with um, with their base voters, but also with voters that they might not have an opening with any other time, um, particularly black voters. And a handful have even shared with me that they're so frustrated with Democratic leadership and this idea that um, President Biden had made so many promises to black voters and that they just have not seen them come to fruition. I think where it once was a question of whether or not they vote or not, you know, whether they vote for Democrats or just stay home, I think they're really considering, at least for the per the conversations that I've had, now actually supporting more Republican candidates. I think that should be like a four alarm fire for Democrats where you have your most your most loyal base voters in a state that you really need to win now considering uh, supporting your opposition party. So it's not a great picture. Um, I think I, I, <laughs> I think President Biden um, and his entire administration have their work cut out for them. And what folks have really been asking for is, is something, you know, give us something, whether that's student loan forgiveness um, or or any number of, of, of last stitch kind of Hail Mary policies that could make um, more base voters say, OK, well, this is worth coming out to vote for one more time. Alex, let, you did a lot of reporting last year on Virginia and California. And one of the things that was effective for Republicans in California was talking about some of those um, what we might call culture war issues, education, critical race theory, those kind of things. We're seeing a little bit of that still, I think. Uh, we're also seeing now these don't say gay bills, um, the transgender legislation. Does, does, while the economy is just sort of the 800 pound elephant in the room, do you think Republicans are going to keep in the midterms talking about these culture war issues? Can they balance it with economic stuff? What is, what is the, the formula there for them that you're seeing start to come together? Well, uh, two things, I think. You know, I think number one, the culture war stuff is primarily a base motivator. And in those elections last year in California and Virginia, that was really the name of the game because, you know, you have an off-year election in California. It was a recall, so it's not even a normally scheduled election. So it's really just about getting your people uh, to the polls. This is a midterm, you know, it's not quite a presidential, but it's still more nationalized. So I, I think there's, you still need to motivate your base, but but you also need to be uh, reaching out to, to swing voters. The other thing is, uh, you know, these these kind of cultural trends seem to kind of move in, in waves or, or pendulum swings. And I think a lot of it uh, last year was a reaction to 2020 after the the big Black Lives Matter movement and the, the attention on quote unquote cancel culture. Um, and I think the pendulum is maybe starting to swing a, a little bit back in the other direction where they're now potentially overreaching with the, the quote unquote don't say gay bill and things like that. I mean, th- this was stuff that, uh, you know, cost Republicans races a few years ago, like in North Carolina, when they, they passed a, a bathroom bill of, about transgender kids and a, a corporate America kind of rebelled against it. They've insulated themselves a little bit from that by accusing corporate America of, of being, you know, woke. Um, but I, I don't think it's the best message necessarily for uh, swing voters. 
so I think you'll see some of that, but they're not. They don't need to lean into it the same way because the the winds are blowing in their direction. The economy is is what it is. The uh, enthusiasm is what it is, and I think this is more an issue of Republicans needing to not screw it up than of them actually needing to win. Uh, you know, if they don't do anything, they are on course to have a very good night in November. Um, like Mitch McConnell said earlier this week. They, they still have a chance to screw it up by overreaching or by nominating the wrong candidates, uh, like we saw in 2012 when they lost a, a handful of, you know, critical and otherwise winnable Senate races uh, because they nominated really uh, vulnerable candidates. I'll, I'll say. Um, and one final point on that: in Pennsylvania, I, I think it's really notable that Trump went with Oz um, for seemingly personal reasons, I, I guess. I mean, you know, because they have been on TV together, they know each other personally, because David McCormick is basically running the Glenn Youngkin playbook, which is the, the only so far proven playbook of, of uh, how to run as a Republican in a purple bluish state these days. Very similar, you know, a business guy who was not a, a particularly Trumpy guy, but is now saying all the right Trumpy things putting a ton of his own money on the air. You know, he is 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 basically just copying the Yunkin playbook which worked. Um but Trump instead decided to go for Oz and uh if Oz was kind of counted out, but if he now wins the nomination and if he ends up not winning in November because of that, which is, you know, two big ifs, but still, um then I think that Trump endorsement is going to we're going to look back on that as a as a critical mistake potentially. SV, let's talk about Ohio a little bit because Trump is heading there uh, next weekend. Um, he has not endorsed, and that might be, other than Pennsylvania, one of the most aggressively courted um, primaries where the candidates have been vying to get Trump's endorsement. Um, do you think he's going to pick a favorite when he goes there? And, and what could that do to the race in Ohio? Well, I, I, I do think he'll pick. I mean, he's been leaning toward J.D. Vance uh, right now, I've heard. But um, there are others who um, are advising him not to, mainly others who are working for the other candidates who used to work for him uh, and saying that it's too risky. You know, whoever wins, you can endorse that, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, Trump likes to take credit for stuff. And he can't really take credit for a win if if he doesn't endorse. So, yeah, I, I do think he will. Um, how much will it matter? I don't know. I mean, Ohio has gone fairly Republican the last few years. On on you know on the other hand, they still do have a Democratic senator, so um, in in Sherrod Brown. So I, I I'm not sure exactly how that plays out. It could be that someone who wins the Republican primary is is not the best person to win a general election in Ohio. That that could be. It could be that Trump's popularity drops even more among general election voters. That could happen. Speaking of which, in Georgia, uh, let's remember here that that if Kemp ends up winning, Trump has gone after Kemp, you know, with hammer and tongue for the last year and a half because he failed to overthrow the election for him in Georgia. Is Trump going to attack Kemp after if if he ends up winning that primary, if so, I mean, what's that going to do for turnout? Remember what he did, how how he tanked the the runoffs, how how uh, Warnock and Ossoff won in the first place. It's because Republicans didn't turn out on January fifth of, of twenty twenty one. So you know, it, Trump's going to make himself the issue um, right now, which is 
probably driving Mitch McConnell crazy because, you know, as everyone's pointed out, I mean, inflation is so bad. You go to the grocery right now and the price at the scanner at the checkout is actually a few cents higher than what it was advertised on the shelves. That's how fast prices are rising. They can't even keep up. On the other hand, otherwise, the economy is pretty good. Everyone has jobs. Everyone's making more. uh, Most people are making more than they were a year ago, two years ago. So if, if that were to change uh, in the next month or two, that would um, that would help Democrats a lot. It probably won't. But again, the economy, this is not like a Jimmy Carter economy. I mean, let's remember that. It's not that bad at all. I think it's a great point about Kemp. I have a hard time just fathoming the idea that Trump will uh, suddenly be able to endorse our campaign for for Kemp if he wins that primary. I'm not sure uh, that he would be uh, capable of doing so. But before we start talking about primaries, I think we need to look a little farther into the future at 2024. Alex, you wrote um, last night the DNC um, adopted a resolution that's going to have them re-evaluate their calendar for the 2024 presidential primary. Does this mean Iowa is not going to be first in 2024? Maybe. And that's a big deal, actually. Uh, I have, as, some, as, a, as a nerd who has followed the Rules and Bylaws Committee of the DNC for several years, I have been very skeptical that they would ever actually do anything. Uh, I, you know, I thought inertia would just kind of take over and Iowa would retain its spot, despite having that very bungled uh, fiasco of a caucus in 2020. You might remember when they didn't get results for days and there was lingering questions about the um whether they were right uh so but this is this is real um the the what the DNC did last night is they set up this process that is going to move very quickly they have until July they're going to accept applications from any state in the country that wants to be in the early uh, window they call it which it would be four or potentially five so that'd be an expansion of states right now it's Iowa New Hampshire Nevada and South Carolina in that order, uh, but it could, you know, potentially change dramatically. I think the most likely thing is that um, certainly Nevada and South Carolina will hold on to their spots. New Hampshire will likely hold on to their spot, but Iowa is in the most danger. Uh, what they're looking for is diversity, what they call feasibility, which is the ability to hold a, a one of these high-profile contests, and also um, the uh, cost of campaigning there. And then political competitiveness, which is, you know, will this state, will investing in the state in the presidential primary help us in the general election? And Iowa kind of fails in all three of those tests. It's it's not diverse. Uh, they just proved in 2020 that they are not great at holding a high profile contest, despite having a long history of doing it. And uh, it's not politically competitive anymore. It used to be a state that, you know, Barack Obama won twice, but it's it's slipped pretty firmly into the Republican column. So Nevada is now making a very strong play to take Iowa's spot to move up into first place. They've switched from a caucus to a primary. The uh, state legislature is controlled by Democrats. The governor is a Democrat. So the entire kind of political apparatus is uh, behind this. And uh, I think they have a good shot of actually doing this. Um, the, The Rules and Bylaws Committee will consider all this. They'll make their decision in July and then the full DNC will have to approve it at their summer meeting uh, later, I think in August. 
So, you know, we'll know by then what the calendar is going to look like. Uh, Republicans are still going to hold their caucus in Iowa, just like always, but the Democratic calendar could look very different. And that'd be the first time since 2008 that they have made any changes to the primary calendar. We'll all have to figure out how to hypothesize about the outcome of a primary that doesn't start with Iowa. It will be a learning process for reporters if that happens. Well, if, if anyone is capable of helping us uh, hypothesize and prognosticate, I'm sure the bookmakers in Las Vegas will be very happy to, to offer their services. I'm sure. Lots more to talk about, including uh, Biden calling the war in Ukraine something genocide for the first time, uh, but which we will get to uh, after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Maya King, S.V. Date, and Alex Seitzwald. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work, taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill along with Maya King, politics reporter at the New York Times, S.V. Date, White House correspondent at HuffPost, and Alex Seitzwald, senior digital politics reporter for NBC News. We saw President Biden do something he has not done before, which was call the actions of Russia, of Vladimir Putin in Ukraine, genocide this week. SB, can you give us a sense of the magnitude of that statement that we heard from him? 
I'm not sure the magnitude's going to be that important given what we're seeing happen in Ukraine. I mean, it, it, it's not like, you know, uh, there's only the word of government officials that something bad is happening there and, and then Biden comes out and calls it uh, the genocide. I mean, we've seen the video. We've seen, we've seen the satellite photos. I mean, it's, it's horrendous what's happening. The only, the only semantic question is, is, is it actually genocide? Is it actually a race of people that Putin is trying to attack? as opposed to a nationality, uh, do most people even care about that distinction? Probably not. So I, I'm not sure that this will be an issue in another week or two. I mean, it's clear that there's all kinds of war crimes going on, that lots of people are looking into them. And when this is over, uh, there will almost certainly be some, be some trials. And, uh, and Vladimir Putin might be among the defendants in that. So, so you know, we'll see. But I don't think this is as near a big deal as, as when he said that, you know, for God's sake, I forget the exact quote, but for God's sake, Putin cannot remain in power as he did in, in Poland. Uh, and that was walked back almost immediately, that it was not official U.S. policy. That was kind of a big deal because he's basically advocating for regime change, which is not the United States policy right now. But as to calling what's happening what's happening, no, I, you know, I mean, in, the, in fact, he made a point later on under the wing that, uh, yeah, and I meant it. So, uh, no, I don't I don't think it means that much. Let me answer this question. We did hear him say after, you know, you're referring to his under the wing comments, but he said, you know, I'm going to let the lawyers decide or the attorneys decide um, about what to do about it. Uh, and it. And it struck me that what we were hearing him do was state, you know, what you call the obvious or... Um, his assessment of the situation there, but it wasn't official U.S. policy. It was it was it, you know, what Joe Biden thought about what was going on there, and this used to not be the case. Presidents used to not come out and say things unless it was official U.S. policy, and that changed under Trump. Are we seeing the continuation of an era where presidents say things and they they aren't official U.S. policy? Is that a shift in how the White House sort of functions? Well, I would say with Trump, it's a very different thing because, um, you know, he was who he was and, and is who he is. With, with Biden, who was on the Foreign Relations Committee for years and understands a lot of these things and yet has for 30 or 40 years been prone to saying stuff uh, and then maybe thinking about what he's just said minutes or, or an hour later. I, I don't think it's as much of an issue uh, as it was previously with Trump, probably more so than Obama and, um, and even George W. Bush were more measured in, in, in what exactly they said. But again, you know, that we're going to let the lawyers uh, sort out the details. That's, well, that's what you do in any prosecution. And if you accuse someone or, or a, a some country of genocide, then that's what happens is they get prosecuted for it. And, and there are people in Europe right now collecting that evidence. So I don't see a big disconnect between saying that I'm going to let the lawyers make that determination or, or move forward and uh, and a personal assessment of, of, of what everyone can see watching the television. Maya, the president is sort of juggling what feels like two, two front crises, this uh, war in Ukraine where he's trying to do what he can, keep NATO together, you know, protect Europe, 
keep world order um, and an inflation crisis that that is at home raging and getting worse, it feels, by the day. Uh, as SV said, prices are rising so fast you can't get to the checkout counter fast enough. Uh, are voters uh, seeing him handle both? Polls say they think he's handling Ukraine okay enough, but is he getting any any credit for it? Are they paying attention at all or or are they just so worried about the price of gas that, that that's all they're focused on? Well, certainly not on the airwaves or or even in, in, in everyday conversations. I think that Democratic voters, folks who are always going to be supportive of the president, are willing to kind of view these crises um, not necessarily in a vacuum and actually understand that these are a lot of different things going on and that um, this is not ideal to take place in a midterm year. Um, but I mean, the message that I'm just seeing on TV and radio, even mailers, it's largely been pushed by, by Republican candidates, but I think it is sinking in, um, in democratic circles and democratic thought at least, or uh, voters thinking that, uh, the president should be able to walk and chew gum and that he's not, I think the white house and, and Democrats nationally have really tried to, like distill that message and sort of focus on the positive. Um, as, as, as Steve mentioned earlier, you know, people do have jobs, wages are higher. The economy is actually relatively healthy right now, but voters just can't quite see through that. And I think, I think that right now um, conservatives are just really winning the messaging wars on this. And I'm just seeing that kind of uh, sink in with a lot of people Um and I, I believe the summertime will really present an opportunity, not just for the president, but for Democratic candidates to to actually go out and try to push back on some of this. But I would say for now, where I see things, it hasn't really, uh, folks are a lot less sympathetic to, the, to this administration. Alex, is there a way a president can balance both of these things? Or does he need to sort of handle Ukraine on the, on, you know, his own terms and then make his public message more about the economy and and gas prices, or should he make his message about the thing that they're not really dinging him for? I'm, I mean, from a logistical point of view, I think the sprawling and you know reasonably competent uh, U.S. bureaucracy. I know I'm going to get heat for that, but compared to a lot of countries, it's a reasonably effective bureaucracy. I think is perfectly capable of handling all this at once. Um, but politically, it's a much more challenging issue. And um, I don't think it's necessarily so much an issue of can he walk and chew gum at the same time. I don't think he can even walk uh, or chew gum, let alone both when it comes to the economy. I'm not sure there's much he can do to really change people's perceptions. Um, I mean, the Fed is is the main policy player here. He can do some stuff on the edges, but then there's the the perception issue. And I think he and Democrats have just lost so much credibility that even if they focused on this every single day from here until November, I'm not sure the message would really sink in. Might just be kind of dismissed as, you know, oh, that's that's what he's going to say. Uh, because th- this it reminds me of the under Obama when Democrats were tearing their hair out about look at you know, look at how many jobs we're creating after the recession. Things are getting better, things are getting better. And no one believed it. They didn't feel it. And if you don't feel it, it doesn't really matter. Um, so like, you know, yes, there are jobs. Yes, wages have risen. But if it looks like inflation is swamping, um, ra- uh, w- wages going up. And, you know, we all know from our 
daily lives, that housing is becoming unaffordable or seemingly unaffordable. Healthcare costs are going up. Education is going up. And that's those are things that you can't really blame the president for. Uh, but you know, when you are the buck stops there and when you are in that job, you get blamed for it, whether it's, it's fair or not. Um, so I think there are things he can do around the edges. And I think he could probably be doing a better job of, of having an effect on the margins. Um, but I I think it's just going to be overwhelmed by things that are way beyond his control, um, that are shaping up for a really bad year. And I think it would take something else huge beyond his control for that to change at this point. Let's go back to Georgia for a moment too, and listen to what Marjorie Taylor Greene had to say when she was on Lou Dobbs this week. Who in his or her right mind would say, sign me up for that, Sarge. I can't wait. Who? Who would do that? I don't know. Not my, not my son. And I know a lot of young people don't want to have anything to do with that. It's like throwing your life away. Maya, this, you know, we... For so long, it has been uh, Republican is about supporting the troops, about being proud to be a military um, service member. It's about being proud to serve our country. We now see a Republican out publicly saying she can't imagine why anyone would want to join the military, and especially not her son. Is this also indicative of a shift we're seeing in public opinion when you know, Biden has been very careful to say we're not going to send any troops to Ukraine. But is it in part because people just sort of don't want anything to do with the military? Well, I think um, we have to be really cautious around taking like comments from Marjorie Taylor Greene and and applying them to a to a broader swath of voters. And her talking points and those on the far right around what's taking place in Eastern Europe have been sort of alarmingly uh, unclear um, in terms of who they are really supportive of. I think early in this conflict, we heard a lot of conversation from folks on the far right, a lot of support uh, for for Putin. And I think what what the Congresswoman was getting at in her comments there um, is is one that she thinks that that President Biden, of course, is mishandling the whole thing and that she wouldn't want her son to serve uh, under this president or, or in that conflict, because really she hasn't made where she comes down on this super clear yet. But also she runs the risk now, I think, of alienating some of those voters who have supported her unabashedly. Because one thing that you don't mess with, especially in the South, is 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 our veterans, and and I think that's actually true nationwide. That's really not something that you would want to touch. People are very sensitive about that, and and veterans and folks who are service members and their families, um, I think the last thing they want to hear from their leaders is is that's is a comment like that's the last thing I would want to do or want my son to do. And I've already heard pushback, including from some. Republican voters to that comment where, you know, essentially what they've what they've argued is, yeah, that was probably the last thing that I wanted to do, too. But I felt like it was my duty or that I didn't have a choice. I needed to go serve my country. If your son were put in that same position, you've been an outspoken supporter of our troops. Why wouldn't you say the same thing or why wouldn't you expect um, the same thing? So uh, it's it's she's kind of put herself in a bit of a minefield. But at the same time, I mean, it would be really easy, I think, for her to walk this back um, with with a few talking points about, again, how poor of a job she thinks that the president is doing right now um, and and just realigning herself uh, with those voters who who might have been a little bit uh, peeved by those by those comments. I wanted to hit on one more topic real quick 
because I was a little surprised yesterday, uh, SB, how this one played out. Greg Abbott put uh, migrants on a bus and had them basically bus cross country from Texas to drop them off in Washington, D.C., down the street from the Capitol in front of the building where NBC News and Fox News operate in Washington, D.C., um, a stunt, a stunt that used real people. But what surprised me was to see Jen Psaki from the podium sort of engage um, and respond and criticize Abbott for this pretty forcefully. Um, is immigration a fight that we're seeing this White House want to, to wade into? Uh, no, they, they don't want to wade into it. Uh, but, you know, we're seeing Democratic candidates facing tough re-elections, Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, going to the border, not to Massachusetts border, going to Mexico border in order to say that this is a big problem and we shouldn't lift Title 42 and et cetera. And, you know, well, I mean, this, this, this is a problem for the Democratic Party, which for years has says we're the party that, that champions immigrants. We believe in, in a melting pot. We want people to come here and take part in the American experiment. And now uh, a number of candidates feeling the heat are saying, oh, no, no, well, maybe we should leave in place this Stephen Miller, Trump era policy of, of say, declaring that, no, there's a pandemic, so no one can come into our country. Um, I, I'm, I'm not really surprised that Jen Psaki would engage with that. She, she seems to like to engage with, with questions from, from, uh, from Fox about all kinds of things. But it is, you know, it's going to be an issue because a lot of the country gets its news from from watching Fox. And if they think there's an invasion at the border, this works, right? I mean, it, you know, these people are coming to get jobs, by and large. They're not coming to commit crimes and do, and, and do bad things and get on the, on the dole. They, they're looking for jobs and they're fleeing violence. And that's what America was supposed to have been about. But right now I'm seeing Democrats in, in tough races uh, not make those arguments. So yeah, immigration is going to be a problem. I'm not sure how they're going to handle it. Great conversation today. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News sitting in for Bill along with Maya King, S.V. Date, and Alex Seidswald. Now it's time for your favorite story of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great meet, read. Maya, why don't you go first? Yeah. Um, well, I've actually come with a story that's just really caught my attention. I think it kind of blew up Georgia politics uh, this week. Another item about Herschel Walker uh, from the Daily Beast about how he claims to own companies that actually don't exist. Um, we've seen a number of reports now kind of digging into some of the claims that Walker has made. This is one of, I think, the more in-depth um, stories kind of on that theme. And I think the biggest is that he's made the claim that he owns or has run one of the largest uh, Black-owned food companies in the United States. Uh, it turns out that that is actually not the case per this report, and that that um, that company is not is not black owned, and that he's actually just been a partner um, in business with the person who actually owns it. And it's I think the tip of the iceberg on a lot of these these types of stories related to Walker, and it's starting to. Um, I think one show how powerful the Oppo machine is um, against his campaign, but two. Uh, gives us, I guess, more of a look into this candidate who, as a football player, was absolutely is still um, like a demigod here in Georgia, which is why he's been able to rise so quickly to the top of the polls. But 
when you start, I think, to give him the candidate treatment, uh, looking into his background, his talking points on different things, um, verifying some of the claims that he's made, uh, doesn't quite um, live up to the same standard. So it's going to be a long couple of months here, or really a couple of weeks uh, leading up to this primary. And uh, this story, I think, has kind of kicked off yet another round of, of really interesting and kind of outrageous uh, stories about, about Walker and his life before the Senate candidacy. I think you're right. Probably won't be the last. SB, how about you? Your story? Yeah, actually, it was this, this morning, Bloomberg had a long feature about uh, the, the Ford F-150 Lightning, the electric version of the most popular vehicle sold in the United States over the last few decades. And I was stunned uh, looking at some of the details. I, I mean, I know the president had gone out to visit um, the, uh, the the factory last year, and I guess I should have paid more attention to exactly the specs on this car, truck. It goes from zero to 60 in 4.3 seconds, fully loaded, all right? Zero to 60 in 4.3 seconds, that's a pickup truck. When American Republican males, who are the main buyers of these things, who don't care about climate change, realize that performance, that's a game changer. That's a big, big deal when people uh, who ordinarily wouldn't look at it twice see that electric cars are way better in most respects than internal combustion engine cars. They're more efficient. They won't care about that. But performance-wise, you get the full torque of that motor immediately. You don't have to get it up to two or 3,000 RPM before you get that. So yeah, that's, that's part of probably a geeky, nerdy thing to think, but this may actually change culture more than a lot of other things happening right now. In my home state of Louisiana, they're also very becoming very popular because you can use them as a sort of generator, um, which on the Gulf Coast is a, is a real perk. So I, I'm with you. I think they're going to catch on. Alex, how about you? Uh, an, an inflation story. This was in the Los Angeles Times about those 99 cent Arizona iced tea cans that I'm sure we're have all seen in you know gas stations and grocery store shelves. Uh, and this is a question, one of those questions that I have wondered, and I thank God for journalism that somebody went out and actually investigated it. And the story is even better than I expected. Uh, the question is basically, how have they continued to sell those cans for 99 cents since I was a child? Uh, they, they started in 1992 selling it at that price. And even as you know, the price of aluminum has gone up, uh, the price of gas has gone up, the price of everything has gone up tremendously. They are still 99 cents, despite uh, if you were to, you know, inflation adjusted dollars, they should be at least twice that. And there's a very fun story about the family business uh, behind Arizona iced tea and how they've, why and how they've chosen to keep their price point at 99 cents for one of those large cans of, uh, you know, mostly corn syrup, but they are delicious. So some free advertising there from for Arizona iced tea. All the regretted print purchasing or printed prices on things. Well, mine is a story, a couple of stories from Ryan Riley here at NBC News, who is following all of the January 6th defendants as they start to go to trial. They're on their third jury trial. And each defendant has sort of taken a unique uh, approach at this point, not both of the jury trials that have commenced, have finished or completed already have been found guilty. So it's like every lawyer who comes now is trying a unique argument. And the one that is up this week that Ryan has been chronicling has basically taken the, the position that he was gullible um, and that he was 
easily fooled by the president to believe uh, the lies about the election being stolen, including having his own wife testify on Wednesday that he was um, not the brightest and that he was led to believe things that weren't true. Um, and I'm not sure what it would take for many people to have their own spouse get up on um, the witness stand and testify that that maybe they're just not that smart. Uh, and that's why you shouldn't be found guilty. Uh, but this guy is trying it. So we will have to wait and see if it works um, when the jury eventually comes back with a verdict. Uh, but it's a pretty unique one and not one that people have taken yet in defense of the actions on January 6th. So what I'm following and has been a bit of, a, of an interesting storyline as it has unfolded. That's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and to Maya King, politics reporter at the New York Times, Esme Date, White House correspondent at Huffington Post, and Alex Seitzwald, senior digital politics reporter and my colleague at NBC News. I'm Ginger Gibson, sitting in for Bill, who is spending the month as a resident fellow at the American Academy in Rome. And Bill has been busy in Rome. Next Tuesday, he'll have an interview with Cindy McCain, who is currently stationed in Rome as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Agency for Food and Agriculture. Pretty important as we may be headed for a huge food crisis because of the war in Ukraine. And again, thanks for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable.